This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. With that being said, please open in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible with you, uh, we'd love to give one to you. And so there are some Bibles out the table. Uh, feel free to grab one and take that home as, as uh, a gift from us today. If you're new, what we usually do here at Christ Church is we pick a, a book of the Bible and we teach it all the way through. Um, we do that because we believe Jesus when he said that the Bible is the very inspired words of God. And so instead of us just kind of picking and choosing random chapters or verses here or there, we like to go through the Bible systematically uh, so that we can really let God set the agenda and, and, and hear him speak to us through his word in the way that he originally inspired it to be read. So we've been in a series in 1 Peter uh, for a length of time, and, and it's been an encouraging series. God's been meeting us in this series, and one of the things, when you go through the Bible systematically, you, you can come to parts of the Bible that are so rich and encouraging and uplifting. I think two weeks ago, we just kind of camped out on one verse and really meditated on what it meant to be the beloved of God and how rich that was to think about the amazing fact that the creator of the universe loves us. And we get to read passages like that, and it's beautiful. Um, but sometimes when you go through the Bible systematically, it can take us to challenging passages, uh, which is one that we have in front of us today. Uh, just to warn you, today we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, which is really addressing how followers of Jesus are meant to interact with the government. With the government. Now, there are two things you're not supposed to talk about, religion and politics. I find it a little hard not to talk about religion in church, uh, but we usually get away without talking about politics. Uh, especially in these political polarizing times. I mean, who wants to talk about anything having to do with the government? I think I might as well just take a, a grenade and throw it into the congregation and see what happens. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, we're asking for trouble. But, but in God's wisdom and in God's plan, he has us in this text today. And he inspired his servant Peter to write these words for a reason. And he preserved this throughout history so that we would have these words for us here today. And so I do believe, while this is a challenging word, I do believe this is a timely word. And even though hearing about our relationship with the government might not be the most heartwarming message we can hear, if you think about it, this does impact our lives in a tremendous way, doesn't it? I mean, aren't we always wrestling uh, a lot with questions like, how do we actually relate uh, with, these, with these authorities that exist in our lives? And God, God loves us. We are his beloved. And so he wants us to know how to live his way, so, that, so he wants to speak into every aspect of our lives. Right? God loves us too much to allow our relationship with him to just be something that exists for a few hours on a Sunday morning. He, he wants to know how his love is meant to shape how we live Monday through Saturday in the everyday things of our lives. And so that's what he's going to be addressing this morning. And I'm sure there are some questions that are going to come from the sermon I want you to be happy to interact with you about them. My email address is matt at christchurchsouthphilly.org. No, Feel free to email me. Jeff is my name. But let's read together at uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 12 down through verse 17. This is 
the word of God to us. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Would you bow your heads with me in another word of prayer? That God would now bless the preaching of his word. God, thank you so much that you love us so much, that you speak to us. You speak to us, Lord God, through these words that you have recorded for us. And I pray that we would come to your word today, Lord God, humbly and with open hearts. Well, I pray for people here who maybe don't even necessarily believe in you. I pray, Lord God, that you give them open minds today to hear what you have to say and to consider the way of life, Jesus, that you taught us and the great love that you have for us. Lord, Lord, I pray that by the end of our time together, our joy in you might be made a little bit more full so that you might get just even a little bit more glory from us. So Lord, would you please speak to us through the preaching of your word. I need your help. We all need your help. Be with us in this moment. Would you build your church through the preaching of your word so that your name might be glorified and your enemies might be horrified. We praise the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So verse 12 here really gives a header for the whole next section of this letter, which goes down to chapter 3, verse 7. And this, this section from 1 Peter 2.12 to 3.7 is really trying to answer this question. How are we as exiles supposed to engage in this world in which we live as exiles? Right? This has been the major theme of 1 Peter. If you place your faith in Christ, that means that we are not from here. Our Father, God, is not from here, and so we also are not from here. We are just passing through this life. We are here as exiles on our way to our true home, which is heaven. But God, while we are passing through, he, he does not want us just to pass by. He, he, he wants us to live in this world in an engaged way. And really what he wants us to do as we live in this world, says in this verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now the word Gentiles here, the Bible can use that in one of two ways. It can use it sometimes to mean anyone who's non-Jewish. And sometimes it can be used to mean, it's the same word it could translate as the nation. So just really anyone who's not following God. And that's the more broad sense that's being used here. As we live in this world that is not going to follow God, how are we as followers of God meant to live? We're meant to live honorable lives. Next week, we're going to see how we are to live honorable lives as those who can suffer injustice sometimes. We're going to see how God sees and God cares about the wrongs done to us, and yet calls us to still live honorably even in that. 
two weeks from now, we're going to see how God calls us to live honorably within our family relationships. But here today, we're seeing how God calls us to live honorably as citizens of the country in which we find ourselves. And it's not a surprise how we are to live honorably. No, he makes it clear. What does it mean to live honorably? He says, so that they may see your good deeds. So that they may see your good deeds. He, he wants us to be honorable people, which he defines as doing good to others. Not so that other people think we're great. Notice the verse 12 says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers. He does not say if people speak against you. He says, when people speak against you. As Christians, we should expect to be misunderstood and sometimes mistreated. Because as Christians, we don't live by the same values as our culture. But instead, we follow the lifestyle Jesus has given us in the Bible. And so you know what happens is that will sometimes create tension with people in our culture. People will speak evil against us because people are always threatened by difference. And so when they see us living differently, following the ways of Jesus, many times that will provoke a negative response. We should not be surprised by this. This text is actually suggesting to us that if no one has ever gotten upset at you for being a Christian, perhaps it's because you're not giving them enough evidence that you are. We should expect people to speak evil about us, but not because we're actually being evil. Not because we're being arrogant or bigoted or unkind. No, we should be doing good. What Peter is telling us here is that we can't stop people from getting upset at us, but we should not be giving them good reason to be upset at us. We should be committed to doing good to others no matter how they treat us. And there's a promise. There's a promise given here that as we do our good to others, one day our good deeds will be seen. On the day, he says, of visitation. In the Bible, the day of visitation can mean one of two things. It can mean the day of salvation, when people become Christians. And so Jesus tells Zacchaeus, the tax collector, when he became a Christian, today salvation has visited your house. So the day of visitation can be the day of salvation, or it could be a day of judgment. The Bible talks about the day when God visits his judgment on the earth. And so the day of visitation is the day that people see God, either see him as savior or see him as judge. But one day we are all going to see God. The only question is, how are we going to see God? Is the savior who welcomes us or is the judge that we turn our backs on? But one day we'll all see God. And on that day when everyone sees God, that is the day when our good deeds will be revealed. And so Peter's saying on that day, people will finally understand us. Because they are now seeing him. And so right now we might be misunderstood. Right now we might be misclassified. Right now we might be mistreated. And, and these Christians that he's writing to certainly were. I mean the whole context of 1 Peter, if you remember from chapter 1, is they're being persecuted for their faith. He is writing to people that this is not theory for them. This is their lives. And he's calling them, and God is calling us, to still do good. Even in the face of people not doing good to you. What a countercultural way to live. We treat people based upon how they treat us. That, that's what we're told in our world. That's not what we should be doing as a church. No matter what people are going against us, we don't fight culture wars. We spread the love of Jesus through our lips and through our lives.
We do good to others, no matter how we're treated by them, because God has been good to us. Because God has been good to us. But specifically, what we're being called to here now, in verses 13 through 17, is doing good as citizens of our earthly country. Doing good as citizens of our earthly country. And so I've entitled this morning's sermon, Heavenly Shaped Earthly Citizens. God God wants us to learn how to live as heavenly shaped, so identity as people who are in exile, as heavenly shaped earthly citizens. We still have a citizenship. We still have countries that we live in here. So how do we live as earthly shaped, heavenly, uh, excuse me, heavenly shaped earthly citizens? And this is the main point that I think God wants to drive into our hearts. It's one thing I think God wants us to leave with here, feeling encouraged, feeling directed, feeling inspired by, and it is this, our Christian witness, our Christian witness is strengthened when we live as good citizens. When we live as good citizens, our Christian witness is strengthened by such actions. Our Christian witness is strengthened when we live as good citizens. We're going to look at two things from these four verses. We're going to look at why God wants us to live as good citizens, and then how do we actually do it. So why does God want us to live as good citizens, and then how do we live as good citizens. First, why God wants us to live as good citizens. Right off the bat in verse 13, Pierce says we should do good deeds as citizens, and he defines that. What's the good deed that we're supposed to do as citizens? We're to be subject to our governing authorities. Let me let you know what to be subject means. It means to be under the authority of. That's how God wants us to relate to government. He wants us to be under their authority. But notice, he does not say that blindly. No, it says, God says, be subject for the Lord's sake. And then verse 15, he says, this is the will of God. And so this is telling us something. This is telling us that there is an authority that is higher than the government's authority. And it is God's authority. God is saying, do my will. Do this for my sake. Be under the authority of your government. Why? Because you're under the authority of me. And so this is why as Christians, we do not absolutely obey our government at all times. There are limits that when earthly authorities go against God's authorities, the right response for those who ultimately answer to God is to resist. And so, for example, when the Egyptian pharaoh ordered the Egyptian midwives to force abortions on all the Jewish women. Those midwives were righteous as they refused to do that. That, That's an unrighteous law. It breaks God's command to preserve life. So they were righteous to resist. Or when the Babylonian king tried to make the Jews eat a certain kind of diet, that was a misuse of authority. He was going too far, and Daniel was right to disobey. But having said that, we need to be clear that disobedience to government should be the rare, 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 rare exception. The posture of our hearts, the disposition and desire should be for us to live in obedience to the authority that God has put over place in our lives. Why does God want us to live in such a way, because counterintuitively, living under the authority of our government is a witness to our freedom in Christ. This is the logic of verse 16. He he, he says, be subject for the, this is the will of God, and in verse 16, live as people 
who are free. Now, what does freedom have to do with obedience? Our culture tells us that those two things are in opposition with one another, right? Our, our culture says that freedom is the ability to not have to obey anything, to be free from all constraints, to be able to do whatever we want. But is that really freedom? I heard this illustration from a pastor named Tim Keller, and I thought it was helpful. Imagine there's a man in his 60s who really enjoys eating food. And he also really enjoys playing with his grandkids. Both eating and being with his grandkids are two things that give him tremendous purpose and meaning in his life. In some ways, there are even two identities that he has. He has an identity as a foodie, and he has an identity as a grandpa. And then he goes in one day to his annual checkup. And his doctor says, if you continue to eat the way you're eating, your heart problems will worsen, and you'll be bedridden, and you'll no longer be able to spend any time with your grandkids. Right? He, he, he now needs to make a choice. And our culture definition of freedom does not give us any guidance about how to navigate such things. He cannot be free to do whatever he wants because he can't have both things at the same time. See, being free to do whatever we want doesn't direct us. What should we do when we have differing wants? And so this man wants to be free to eat, but he also wants to be free not to be bedridden and being unable to be with his grandkids. And so he must make a choice. He must either accept the limits of his eating, or he must, he must accept the limits of his poor health, but he cannot have both. And so Pastor Keller says it this way, real freedom comes from a strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain others. It is not the absence of constraints, but is choosing the right constraints and the right freedoms to lose. Freedom is not the absence of constraints, but is rather choosing the right constraints that will allow us to actually be free. The man had to choose to constrain his diet in order to be free to be with his grandkids. He had to say no to his internal desire for the foods that he wanted because that desire was not actually leading to his freedom. Now, it could be said, yes, but he was still free to choose either option, right? He could choose food or grandkids. And that's true in that scenario. But, but think about this. Are we always actually free to choose whatever we want? Are, are, aren't there just certain constraints that are built into us by design? Like, I am not free to pursue playing in the NBA as much as I would have liked that. I'm not free. I'm a 5'10 white guy who in my best days could jump and maybe grab the rim just a little bit. Right? There are some, there are some constraints that have been built into me by design. And so if I spent all my time trying to pursue being an NBA player, I would actually not be a very free person. I'd be chasing something that I could never attain. What do you call that? The Bible calls that slavery. I was being free to do whatever I wanted. I was being free to follow my heart. But when we try to follow our hearts in contrary to how God has designed us, that does not lead us to the freedom we want, but actually slavery that we'll never fulfill. I've, I've used this example before, but, you know, imagine a, a fish that internally really feels like it's actually a land animal. And it just wants to really be on the land as much as it possibly can be. Well, is it really free to go be on the land? Well, I guess on the one hand, yes, but that freedom will soon lead to its death. Right? Its desires don't change its design. We are not free to do whatever we choose. We experience freedom only when we submit our choices 
to the various realities that honor our design. But having a design immediately implies what? That we have a designer. If we say that we are people who are created, that immediately implies that we are people who have a creator. And this is why God says there's freedom in submitting our lives to him. Let's read again verse 16. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. See, living as God's servants is living how we've been designed to live. We do not find freedom by having no master. We find freedom by having him as our master. When we allow God to be the one who defines us, when we submit our desires, whatever they might be, to his holy word and and choose to live instead according to his design, living by God's design, not our desires, that is how we find true freedom. And this takes us right to the heart of why God wants us to submit to earthly authority. Because what's happening is how we relate to earthly authority really reveals how we are relating to God. See, if we believe that God is in control of all things at all times, that his will is best, then when we find ourselves under authority, we recognize that's not happened by chance. That wasn't a mistake. No, we recognize that God has allowed that authority to be in our lives. And so except for very rare occasions, we are to submit to that authority. We are to obey that authority. We are to follow that authority. Why? Because we've been created to serve God. And God said that he wants us to respond to his authority by being under the authorities he's placed over us. Now, I think we can sit there and think, hey, that's great in theory. I would trust God and just, yeah, I'm just going to trust God and be on this authority. I would do that, but, but man, this person would be crazy, right? This person would be crazy. And fill in the blank with whatever governing authority you don't like. Maybe it's the mayor, maybe it's the governor, maybe it's the president, maybe whatever, right? I would do that, but this is one of those rare occasions I just can't. Well, hold your horses there for a second. If you think that person is crazy, whoever comes to your mind, let me just be clear, God's used crazier. God's used crazier. Peter's writing this during the reign of the emperor Nero. When he's saying honor the emperor, that's who he's saying, honor Nero. If you're unfamiliar with who Nero is, he's the guy who set the whole city of Rome on fire so that he could compose a song as he watched it burn. He had not one, not two, but probably about 14 child brides. He was a pedophile, one of the most gross men who has ever lived. May God have mercy. That's who Peter is saying that these Christians need to be subject to. Now, obviously, he's not calling them to excuse Nero's gross immorality. No, sin is always sin. And Nero was horrific in his sin. And these Christians were not called to make any kind of excuses for that sin. What they were called to is as long as Nero didn't make laws that interfere with God's commands, they were still to live in obedience to that authority. Because God can even use a crazy person like Nero to accomplish his redemptive purposes. I mean, let's remember that the heart of our faith is the bloody cross of Jesus Christ, where he died in our place to save us from the judgment of God that we deserve for our sins. But how did he get there? Because God used the authority of the Sanhedrin to condemn Jesus to death. 
And God used the authority of Pilate to sentence him to execution on the cross. There's this really interesting uh, dialogue between Jesus and Pilate as Jesus is showing no fear before Pilate in John chapter 19. And this is what Pilate says to him. You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Watch what Jesus says. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Here Christ is saying, he's saying the evil and corrupt authority that caused the gravest atrocity in history, the murder of the innocent Christ, was also at the same time God working out his plan for our salvation in Christ. And so for those who believe that God can use the cross to save us, we should be those who trust that whatever authority is in our lives, God can use that, even if it's evil, God can use that for our good as well. And so we are to live in submission to earthly authority because we trust our heavenly king. And so regardless of who's in the White House, because of who's on the throne, we live in obedience, I'm free. My response is not dictated by my candidate getting elected. My response is controlled by the king who's never elected, by the king who rules supremely over all things at all times, and I'm going to live as his servant. I'm going to live as someone who's free. So regardless of what's happening here on earth, I'm going to interact with it the same way. Our responses are not dictated upon the things that change here constantly. Our responses come from the unchanging King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're free people. We're not bound by what binds other people. We live as people who are free. And we use that freedom to follow Christ, to follow our Lord, and to live in obedience. And I just have to say that I do think this is a massively important thing for us to understand right now in our moment of history. Right now, here in America, there is so much fear of the other side. And that goes both ways, which regards to which way you, you see yourself on the different sides. Right? So whether you fear the taker over the conservatives, or you fear the progressive agenda, or you fear the left or the right, those crazy Democrats, those unfeeling Republicans, right? Both sides are protesting. Both sides are speaking and acting with violence. Both sides are spreading lies. I mean, just start tracing out the conspiracy theories that are out there. It's just mind-boggling sometimes. Historians are saying that right now, we probably have not been this divided as a country since the Civil War. And so, yes, we are not fighting each other with bullets right now, at least not on a grand scale. So things have been worse. But things are not great. Things are not great. How many people are leaving churches? How many people are not speaking to family members because of politics? I don't remember that earlier in my life. It's sure happening now. We're living in very polarizing times. Friends, as Christians, we are not meant to enter into this division. Regardless of who is in power, since we know God has all power, we do not react with fear, rebellion. We do not speak with dishonoring mockery. No, we live at peace with humble submission and with hope for the future. Because yes, this world will one day be destroyed in fire. Like, what's going to happen? What's our country coming to? I'll tell you what's going to come true. Destruction at some point. 
Everything's going to burn up. That's what it's coming to. But God is going to purify that. God's going to make all things new in Jesus Christ. And so as a Christian, regardless of how fearful things are right now, we have a bright future. And there's no reason to fear. There's no reason to fear, and yet how often that's what can happen. Listen, listen. We forfeit the freedom of our identity as servants of the heavenly king when we react to earthly authorities with the same amount of disrespect as the rest of our country currently is. I think the moment God is giving us right now is to show the difference that being a free servant of the king of kings makes. Our peace is not bound by what authorities are over us, but rather we are free because of the God we know who is for us. And so we do not react with fear, but we react with peace. We do not mock, but we speak respectfully. We are not angry, but we're joyful. We're not concerned, we're hopeful. Are your neighbors seeing you react differently than they are? during these polarizing times? Or are the same cult- cultural talking points, again, for either side, are they your cultural talking points? Let me ask it this way. Are people more aware that you're conservative or progressive or a Christian? It's a question we need to grapple with. It's a question we need to grapple with. And, and really, friends, as we follow our design, as we live in obedience to the authorities God's put in our lives, that, that, that's how we live as Christians. We're, we're not adherents to any party. We're free. But we use our freedom to follow God into a life of godly submission. So how do we actually do that? What does that actually look like on the street level? Uh, how do we wake up tomorrow and pursue living this way? Pursue being this kind of witness to our neighbors? How does God, how, how God wants us to live as, as good citizens? Look at verse 17. We're given four commands in kind of rapid fire. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now that, that, that phrase, fear God, is kind of one that really is captured in all the other three ones. It's, it's not the fear of being scared, but it's the fear of reverence. The respect that God is owed. And so what he's saying is here, because, because you respect God, honor the emperor, that God's allowed to be in place. Honor everyone. And love the brotherhood. So let's look at those three just real quickly. Uh, I'm going to start with honoring the emperor. We, we obviously don't have an emperor. Um, but we all have people who are over us in authority. We do. And, and, and this is really, as it's saying here, honor the emperor. It's really upping the call from verse 13. Now we're not just called to be obedient, to be subject. We're actually called to hold the authorities that are in our lives in a place of honor. This is not just speaking to our actions. This is now calling for our attitudes. We're being told to honor, to hold and esteem the authorities that God has allowed in our lives. And, and notice, it says, honor the emperor. This is honoring the position. He doesn't name a person. So this wasn't like, hey, just honor Nero. It applied to Nero, but it also applied to Claudius. It applied to all the emperors that were then to come. It applies today to the people that we find in a position of authority over us. If they have that position, that's a position that God has allowed them to have. And so regardless of who is in that position, we honor that position because God's allowed them to be in that place. Because here in America, we have the privilege of being able to examine candidates and consider their qualifications and vote people in and out of office. I think part of the way that we actually honor the position 
is by participating in the system of electing people to that position. And so I think it's actually not honoring to not vote. I think voting is one of the ways that we honor the position. But once someone is in that position, regardless of whether we voted for them or not, we are to honor them for the position that God has allowed them to hold. We should speak with respect even when we disagree. And I just want you to know, I'm preaching to myself on this. I'm preaching to myself on this. Last year, um, around New Year's, uh, our city postponed the New Year's Day parade, pushing it from Saturday to Sunday. Um, And in my opinion, they did it for no good reason. Um, And I was actually very personally frustrated with it. I was frustrated with many decisions that our city made last year. But particularly this one, because by doing that, uh, we live off 2 Street. And so you know what that means around New Year's. This whole area just basically gets shut down. And so I'm like, man, great. Like, here we are, you know, we're, we're trying to gather, and they're basically taking away, taking away a Sunday from us. And there's no good reason why they can't just do this on Saturday. So I was frustrated, and I know many people in the church were frustrated. And so I was like, you know what, instead of just giving it frustration, I think one, one of the helpful ways, I think, sometimes to go through frustration is just to laugh, just, just to kind of ease tensions by having some levity. And so, you know, what I did is I was like, hey, I don't know why they're doing this. You know, uh, and I made up some kind of funny story about, you know, the city council eating bad burritos and, and having a dream the next day and just waking up in some kind of fever and making a really stupid decision, right? I was trying to bring levity and be funny because I was honestly frustrated. And, and it actually was pretty funny, I think, I think so. Um, but, but I think there was a better way to have brought levity that would not have mocked our officials. And so that was honoring to them. That's why if you're here around that time, that's why you got a follow-up email from me apologizing for my, for my poor example. God wants us to honor our authorities. He wants us to do this as a way of bearing witness to him. It's a way to bear witness to him. The world mocks authorities they don't like. As Christians, whether we like the authority or not, because we love God, who's an ultimate authority, we should never mock who God puts in authority. We should honor. We should honor. And, and, and not just honor people who are in authority, but look, it says honor everyone. Honor everyone. According to the very first chapter, the very first book of the Bible, every person that has been made, has been made in God's image. And so if we want to honor God, then we must honor those who are made in the image of God. In our world, people are often honored based upon their accomplishments. I'm sorry, guys, parenting right now. Hey, guys, hands to yourself. Thank you. Sorry, sometimes still a dad, even though I'm a pastor, still have to be a dad. Um, But in our world, people are often honored based upon their accomplishments, right? So if you're a CEO or an athlete or a musician or an artist, uh, sometimes, you know, if if you're someone who can do something extraordinary, like we hold those people in a little bit more esteem. We call them celebrities. And, uh, And we think there's the little, you know... We get excited when we're around them. We want to see them. We ask for autographs or take selfies when we see them out in the, out in the street. You know, in my role I, uh, as chaplain for the Phillies, uh, a couple years ago I was on a road trip with them, and word must have gotten out about where they were staying in the hotel uh, because every time we'd exit the hotel, there was like a horde of people around just looking for like autographs and stuff when they came out. And uh, it was just hilarious to me because like, you know, one time we're, 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 you know, we're coming out and, uh, you know, there goes Bryce Harper, and everyone's, like, has their cards, like, you know, they're given to him. And then out comes JT Romuto, and out comes Aaron Nola. And then I come out. And people are looking for a card and looking at me and looking at their cards and looking at me. And, like, very confused. And then someone says, oh, it's a nobody. It's a nobody. It's a nobody, you know. <laughs> yep, just a pastor, nobody, you know. That's me. 
That's me. And, you know, honestly, compared to what those amazing athletes can do from a worldly accomplishment standpoint, I am a nobody, certainly. I am a nobody. But friends, here's what we need to understand. Regardless of what we accomplish, our value does not come from anything we accomplish here. Our value comes from the one whose image we bear. And there's nothing we can do here that can rival. There's nothing that you can do here that can rival the value that you already have. You are an image bearer of the almighty maker of the universe. You are an image bearer of the one who spoke the world into existence out of nothing and who upholds everything by his sovereign power. You are an image bearer of this all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving, almighty God. You've been made in his image and likeness. And so regardless of how much self-esteem you feel like you have or don't have, there is nothing that you can or cannot accomplish in this world that could possibly rival the value that God says you have just as being his image bearer. You need to know today you're a valuable person. Regardless of how valuable you feel, your value does not come from how you feel or from what you do. Your value comes from the one whose image you bear. And so that's not just something we feel for ourselves. That should then inform how we interact with one another. You've never met just a mere mortal. I used this quote before by C.S. Lewis. You've never met just a mere mortal. The only person, people you meet every single day on the street is someone who bears the image of God. And therefore, whether they are a CEO on Wall Street or someone homeless on the street, they deserve us to honor them with the respect that an image bearer deserves. And so just real practically, how do we do that? I mean, I think, I think it's, it's something that, that we don't do and something that we do do. Something we don't do is we don't speak disrespectfully to one another. Some of you right now might need to delete your social media accounts. How, how much disrespect just happens right there? It's people bashing each other left and right, right? And, uh, and as I think about that, on the one hand, I'm like, what a, what a stupid waste of time. Like, I don't think everyone's ever read a t Facebook rant and been like, man, you know what? I really need to reevaluate my life choices. You know, th these phrases that are so emotionally charged and so derogatory of, of the other side are really making me rethink my life, right? Like, no, no one's ever done that. It doesn't help anything at all. What a, it's just a dumb waste of time. Let me, let me free you. Give some moments back into your day. Stop doing that, right? Stop doing that. But, but not only is it, is it stupid, and I'll be honest, I can be stupid sometimes. So, like, that is why, actually, I got off a lot of social media. It's like, I just don't need another temptation of stupidity in my life. Um, but, but, you know, not, not only is it stupid, it's godless, it's not speaking with honor. It's not speaking with respect. It doesn't matter who someone is. It doesn't matter what they believe. It doesn't even matter how they are acting. If we believe they bear the image of God, then we must speak to them, even if we're correcting them, we must speak to them with honor and respect. And not only is it just refraining from speaking poorly, it is choosing to seek their good. Right, again, the whole context here is of doing good deeds. Part of how we are good citizens is by honoring our neighbors and seeking their good. That might be cleaning up our blocks. Instead of just complaining about the trash, it might be cleaning up the trash. It could mean organizing block parties to foster community amongst your neighbors. It might be participating in our local public schools or a civic association. It, it should be having people in our homes and building relationships with those who are far from Christ. I mean, there are so many ways to get involved and seek to honor our neighbors by being good to them. It's the question we should ask ourselves is, how am I using my time and my resources to honor the people 
that God's put in, around me? How's my life honoring others? And finally, not only do we honor others, we, we, we love the brotherhood. We love the brotherhood. The Greek word that's being translated here is not gender specific, but is speaking to a community brought together as family. Right? The call to love is not just a general call to love everyone, although we are to do that, but this is a specific love that we're meant to have for a specific community, a love so deep for one another that we become family to each other. Now, what does that have to do with being a good citizen? Well, here's the reality, friends. As we consider what takes place in our church community, we can't always control what happens in the world around us. We can't. We can try to be an influence, but we are a minority. We are a minority, and we're going to be a minority, right? We will be a minority till the Lord comes home. But we can be a beautiful countercultural in here. In, in here, and I'm not just talking about this building, but in here is our local church community. In here, we can be what Pastor John Tyson calls a beautiful resistance. In, in a world that defines greed as financial responsibility. In a world that defines the deconstruction of family as progress. In a world where the objectification of men and women in pornography is seen as sexual freedom and empowerment. In a world where commitment is unnecessary and lust is defined as love, the church is a beautiful resistance. But there's a more beautiful way. The way of Jesus. And so in our church community, we don't objectify one another with lust, but honor each other's brothers and sisters in purity. In our church community, we don't hoard our money in greed, but generously give for one another's good. In our church community, we don't treat each other differently based upon how we might look differently, but we honor everyone as the same. In our church community, we are slow to speak and quick to listen. In our church community, we care for one another. We bear each other's burdens. We don't gossip about other people. We encourage one another. In our church community, we faithfully engage in actually being present. We're, we're committed to relationships with each other. We don't just come together for what we get out of it. No, we aren't selfish in that way. We, we come for what we can give. We come for how we can serve. We come for how we can contribute to make the community stronger. And in our church community, we don't love each other conditionally. We love each other unconditionally. Even when we might disagree politically. As we do those things here in our local church community, we are modeling to a broken world, not how we've got it all together, but how Jesus can take broken people and bring us together to make something beautiful. Jesus' disciple John said that people don't see God, but when they see us loving each other, they're going to see what God's love is like. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. Jesus said, this world will know you're my disciples. How? By the love you have for one another speaking about the church community. Friends, as we love one another, as we're a beautiful resistance that refuses to engage in the polarizing ways of this world, we are saying to the world, not with our lips, but with our lives, look at what Jesus makes possible. He is so good. Look at the love he creates. And I can't say this final point without saying how grateful I am to be part of this church community. How grateful I am, not just as a pastor, but just as a member here, to be, to be part of the loving relationships and, and just how you are living this out. By the grace of God, we're not perfect, and I'm sure there are ways that you feel convicted in this message about how to grow. I know there are for me, but as a whole, by the grace of God, I think we're a loving community, and I praise the Lord for that.
I praise the Lord for what he's doing here sometimes. You know, I think about this. The city can be fatiguing sometimes. Let's be real. It can. It can. Uh, I can often hear the, the grass of the suburbs calling my name. But the reality is there's nowhere else I'd rather be. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. I've been part of other churches before. And nothing against them. But I love what we're building here. I do. And I'll get my beautifully married backyard in heaven. So why do I need it here on earth anyways? And so I just want to encourage you, especially if you're new, and, and the summer's an interesting time because, like, three-quarters of our church isn't here, and then we always have, like, a bunch of new people every single week. So I'm like, hey, please come back in the fall. You'll actually meet the church. Um, but I just want to encourage you, if you're new here, like, get involved. You're going to get to meet some great people. Um, go on our website, The Hub, and join a Bible study. We have men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies. Our small groups are starting up again in the, in, in the fall. Like, like, you're going to be loved. That's one thing I can be confident. Because they can love me. They can definitely love anyone. And so you're going to be loved here. And I praise, I praise God for that. My, my life has been so impacted by this loving community. And I'm just eager for, for us to continue to experience this together. So as we come to a close here, I, I want to give this parting exhortation. I want to remind us as we, where we started. We live as good citizens for the Lord's sake. Which means this. Now is that our motivation? We want to glorify God. Not only is that the motivation, that's also the means. And what I mean by that is only by looking to Jesus, only by looking to the Lord can we live this way. You know, it's said that nothing divides like politics because nothing divides like fear. So left and right, Democrat, Republican, progressive, conservative, everyone's afraid of the other side. But you know what our Lord says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18? There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. And he's talking about the perfect love of Jesus. Love showed on that cross where Christ died in our place for our sakes and showed that even the greatest evil in the world can be used for our redemptive good. As we see God's love displayed for us in Jesus, friends, that's meant to cast out all fear in our lives because we see that no matter what can happen to us, nothing can stop God's redemptive purposes for us. And so even in these divisive times, followers of Jesus should be a united people because the Lord Jesus is our perfect peace. So Christ Church, let's continue to look to Jesus. Let's continue to build ourselves up in our faith in Him and in the strength that He provides. Let's be heavenly shaped, earthly citizens in obedience to God and as a witness to our world. Let's pray.